Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquet Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Roger Guimard, Distinguished Professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies and Laureate of the 1977 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, talks about his life and career with Dr. Greg Lemke, Francoise Gilles-Sac Professor at the Salk Institute. Dr. Guimard discusses his childhood and high school education in Dijon, France, and how he and his friends preferred to go underground at the end of their first year of medicine rather than be shipped to Munich to build weapons for the German army. After the war, Dr. Guimain practiced medicine, then decided to follow Hans Selye to his laboratory in Montreal. There he began the research in endocrinology that led him to make discoveries and lay the foundations of the study of brain hormones, eventually winning the Nobel Prize. Okay, welcome. Uh, my name is Greg Lemke. I am a professor at the Salk Institute. I've been a colleague of our guest today, Roger Gilman, for many years. Um, and we're here today really to more or less to reminisce about the history of uh, the founding of neuroendocrinology mm -hmm. and of... Um, Roger's basically establishment uh, uh, of this field. So I thought we would start. Many, many folks who, who encounter scientists are always interested initially in really how people got started in science. And I know your background is, is fairly extraordinary in that, in that sense. Um, like many, yeah. Well, no, in the sense that like many scientists... Um, You came from very modest backgrounds. Absolutely. Um, from some place that's very far away from, from where you eventually ended up. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about where you were born, how you grew up, and how the scientific sure. motivation started. Well, that's a nice beginning. Uh, I was born in Dijon, in Burgundy. Uh, that's where they make good California wines, as you know very well. <laughs> and... Uh, I went to the public schools, uh, including the lycée, and the education in those days was something which I don't think we have encountered again, either in this country or in France, which was six years of classic French literature, five years of Latin, four years or five years also of Greek, and five years of a foreign language either German or English. And my mother had decided I should learn German. So that's what I did. And uh, actually I was, I liked this idea of speaking foreign language. And eventually I spoke German absolutely fluently with a little southern accent because the main teacher was from Bavaria. And uh, as I may say later, it saved my neck during the war when I was in the underground. <clears throat> So that was the general education I had. And I also was interested in doing all sorts of things with my fingers. I had collected a big herbarium, a beautiful, over a hundred specimens in the book. I also used to go look for mushrooms, not only to classify them, but also to eat them, of course. They were delicious. <laughs> 
I know the difference between some of the bad ones. <laughs> some you should eat and some you Well, that's right. So um, I also, as a young fellow, did all sorts of things with my fingers. I liked to, uh, I built, I remember, building this little radio radio receiver with a galena, a galena crystal. In those days, it was before the, uh, the tubes. And I could hear Paris and La Tour Eiffel, of course. And I also later on built a, a small transmitter on the 50, you know, the 5 meter, 56 megahertz, uh, which was easier to build. And that, the power of that thing was probably 5, 6 watts. So, so there was Radio Roger for a while. Well, <laughs> um, you know what I did with that? I found out that this was the frequency of the German planes uh, because France, um, by that time, had lost the war in 1940 uh, Mm -hmm. or 41. And uh, what I did with my little radio thing was to interfere with the the thing of the Germans until one day I saw this big truck with radar things around. So So I... turn off and dismantle everything, <laughs> and I stop right there. So um, anyway, all of this to say that I decided to go to medical school. Rather, I really hesitated between going to an engineering school or to go to medical school. We had Because to, your father's <clears throat> business was, a, he was making uh, machinery. Well, told, exactly. So this was another line, so to speak. But uh, the idea of practicing medicine appealed to me also. So I uh, went to medical school, and uh, I wa- that was the end of the first year of medical school. That was 43, 43. Like all the 19-year-old boys at that time, we all received an order from the German commandantur to be at the French station in the next 48 hours at such and such time with enough food for two days uh, going all the way to around Munich, which we understood was a place where they were uh, building all sorts of things for the German army and so on. So they were, I remember we were three or four of us uh, receiving this shipping order uh, and we are in the medical school, and I, we told, and we all tore the thing and, and said, we're going to disappear in the underground. The other two, I remember, decided something else. Uh, they said, well, what we will do, we will go as nurses to the, in the German hospital, which satisfied the German, the German thing. But I decided to disappear into the underground, and I took my bike, to ride about 100 miles to the Jura Mountains where I trusted, you never knew for sure, that these friends of mine uh, would be involved with the underground. And when I said that I spoke German in those days, uh, I was stopped on the, it was against the, 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 the law, you know, you, are, you were not supposed to leave uh, the, 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 the city of Dijon without a special permission from the French police and the German, the commandant tour. And I had nothing of that, of course. 
So I was stopped on my way to Besançon, to the Jura Mountain, on two occasions by the German patrols. And uh, they actually put me in the local jail on those two occasions. But the fact that I spoke German fluently, I told them some sort of story and they let me out. That happened the second time too. And eventually I got to Besançon, where for the following six months, and until the liberation mm -hmm. by the Fifth Army, uh, I run this underground uh, camp in the, the forest next to near Besançon, where we, uh, it was such an extraordinary thing. We would, the, the job, the, the, the role of this thing was essentially to take people to the Swiss border. It was a transit point. Yeah, it, exactly. And uh, we had all sorts of, there were a couple, I remember two, these two fellows, they were pilots from uh, American, an American plane who had Which been shot down. shot down. So we took care of them and we took them to, uh, to the next step to the Swiss border. And one day I got this message uh, that this man who was leaving the Vichy government to, who wanted to go to reach the goal in, in, uh, in England would come to our station that night and I was supposed to take care of him and eventually send him back. So which we did. I never knew who he was actually until after the end of the war where I realized that he was one of the ministers of of Pétain and the Vichy government and went to London. And uh, so we took care of him and sent him. And maybe half an hour after I had sent him about four o'clock, it was still night, I hear this noise around the place. And um, look, and it was a, uh, about 200 German soldiers with one tank come by uh, circling the whole camp and and uh, again, because I spoke German, I told the first, where is your commanding officer? So he took me to this lieutenant or captain, and I started talking to him. I said, what are you doing here? This is a place where we, by the way, kept children. That was the cover. Uh, that was the cover, who had been evacuated from the suburbs of Paris because of the bombardments. And uh, in perfect German, he tells me, but... You have interesting guests here. I said, what are you talking about? So I took him around and I said, this is a camp for these children. So the whole thing lasted another day and the, the, the whole day. Unfortunately, they killed two people who were collecting mushrooms in the forest next door. And, then, and a few weeks later, when the Fifth Army came up, there was some fight between the Germans and the Americans for all and somehow we, get, we were caught in the fire, the firing, and, and one shell, unfortunately, I kill, killed one of the children and just scraped my skull. And to this day, I still have the scar. Yeah, I was going to say, skull. you live with this injury for Absolutely, a while. Absolutely, yeah. So, so, so that's quite an adventure. I mean, you're having <laughs> this, this business here, you've, you've already graduated from medical school, but then when the liberation comes, and the war's over, you're basically, even though you have this interest in science and always have had, you're basically a practicing physician, right? Absolutely, sure. You're almost Roger the country doctor, right? Well, yes, exactly, sure. And uh, actually, I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, but intellectually, I thought it was rather limiting 
because in those days I could take care of all my patients with three prescriptions, including aspirin. <laughs> so it was intellectually limited. But the emotional thing was wonderful, you know. Right. In fact, I was telling uh, earlier that when I received the Nobel Prize, which was 50 years, 40 years later, I received three letters of congratulation from three women who were in their late 80s, whom I had actually taken care of as a, when I was the, the, the doctor of saint saint labbaye <laughs> name of the little town. That was so touching. So, but what was the opportunity that you had, basically, to get into research in the first place? I, I know you had followed... Um, as much as you could in the small town, the literature and endocrinology up to that time, and you had, you know, you knew something about hypothalamic actions. And my recollection is that there was a scientist you eventually <coughs> ended up working with, who was traveling in France. Right? You're ahead of me. Well, but you, you had an, you had a chance to 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 hear his lecture, isn't that right? Uh, yes, but what happened was that during the well, you know, during the war, we were completely cut off from what was going on, and right after the liberation and so on, they started getting we started getting information through magazines, and uh, I read about this man in Montreal called Hans Selye, who was talking about the stress reaction of the mm-hmm. organism. And uh, I read what, I, what was available. And one day, I, don't, I still don't know how I found out that he was coming to give three lectures in Paris. So I decided I would leave the... Uh, I organized to have somebody come and help with the patients. And I went to Paris to hear him. And uh, I'll never forget that first lecture by Célier. He spoke French, by the way. And since I did not know a word of English... Uh, it was welcome. He had his ways with the language anyway. And what he started, he gave this lecture. They were probably 200 people who were coming to hear him at the L'Hôpital de la Pitié. That's where mm-hmm. it took place. And on the screen, there were some color slides. Gee, I'd never heard of colored slides. And it was so extra. So he started talking about the response to stress, whatever, number one, what is stress? Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever the, the stressing agent, the response is always the same with activation of the adrenal gland secreting more steroids because at that time the structures of the, 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 the steroids were beginning to be, to be understood. And he said, but the whole thing, which we still don't understand, it what is what mechanism triggers the response of the adrenal secreting order. So uh, we know that it has to be with the pituitary gland, but we don't know how. And so, so I went to his second, third lecture. And at the third lecture, I went to talk to him and I said, could I please uh, have a few minutes with you? And I said, is there a way? I, I, you know, I'm a young practitioner in Burgundy. Uh, is there a way I could go to your, uh, to your institute in Montreal and do some research to get my... In France, you could practice medicine when you had finished the school, but you did not get the, the title of doctor en médecine unless and until you would defend a 
thesis, mm. so a dissertation. So I said, I asked Celie, could I go in your laboratory for maybe a year and prepare a dissertation? And, and he talked to me for a couple of hours, and he said, fine, next October, October 1st. So I said, here When we was go. this, what? And that was in 1948. Now what, so how much preparation did you have before leaving? Well, few uh, months. About three months, as I remember. In fact, uh, I had to talk to my brother because I didn't have the money to, to <laughs> take the plane <laughs> to, to get all to the Montreal. way to Montreal. Sure. Anyway, so um, to cut a long story, that story short, I went to Celier's uh, Research Institute in 1948. And uh, the idea was that I would be there for one year and prepare for my French dissertation. And he had asked me to start a series of experiments where I would remove both kidneys in rats and keep them alive for as long as possible while we would either inject or implant uh, desoxycorticosterone, you know, the mm -hmm. mineralocorticoids, mm -hmm. uh, which, according to Cellier, were the mechanism stimulating the kidneys to secrete, nobody knew what exactly, which turned out to be renin, mm -hmm. working through the angiotensin uh, later on, producing hypertension and cardiac lesions and so on. So Celier's idea, he, he was really full of interesting ideas. He wanted, if you can keep the animals alive without, without kidneys, two kidneys yeah. and I did peritoneal dialysis for over a month. I kept those animals alive for over a month. And uh, sure enough, uh, when we did the autopsies, after the, all the mineralocortica, the, 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 the steroid they had, they had no heart lesion and so on. So Célier was delighted at the whole result. And that was what I wrote for my <coughs> dissertation for the French title, but uh, which I came back to France to defend and so on. And that's when I decided to go back to, uh, to Célier's Institute. I had discussed that with him, and he said, absolutely. So I came and re registered both at McGill, and uh, by that time I understood somewhat, some English, both at McGill and the Université de Montréal uh, for the PhD degree. And I stayed in Célier's laboratory and worked there for the next four years. And uh, Célier, uh, in that institute where they were about 15 young people uh, from various parts of the world, coming to, to listen and work with Célier for a couple of years, um, Célier had instituted a system whereby uh, every oh, three or four times a year there would be a special lecturer invited, mm -hmm. which he called a Claude Bernard lecturer part of the Claude Bernard lectureship. And I, we got quite a few interesting people, but the one who really caught uh, my attention, and I was not the only one, uh, was this man called Geoffrey Harris, who came from uh, London, and uh, he was at the Maudsley Hospital. Uh, he had his own laboratory, and he had been doing a series of experiments in, uh, you, in animals which were mostly ferrets, I remember, and rabbits, in which he had shown that uh, if you implant electrodes 
in various parts of the brain in those creatures, you could also study the function of the endocrine glands and particularly of the pituitary. And he had actually published quite a few papers, or several papers, in which he showed that specific lesions, specific locations in this part of the brain called the hypothalamus, you could specifically, by activating with uh, high frequency, uh, you could specifically stimulate the pituitary of the, the animal to secrete one of the known pituitary hormone or another. And if you change the, the kind of power of current that you go through those, those electrodes, you could actually make a lesion. You could ablate it. You could make a lesion. And sure enough, the specific pituitary hormone would not be secreted anymore. So uh, it was a whole new chapter of physiology. But there was a small problem. Nobody really understood at that time, uh, for sure, how whatever coming from the hypothalamus would activate the pituitary. Because the problem was that it was known that there were no nerve fibers going from the hypothalamus to the the anterior lobe of the pituitary. Now, at that time, nonetheless, it was well known from the work of Duvigno in, in New York that the posterior lobe of the pituitary uh, was making two molecules uh, of which he established a complete molecular structure and synthesized them, molecule vasopressin and oxytocin. But uh, it still did not, we knew that, that those nerve fibers going to the posterior lobe of the pituitary and coming from the hypothalamus we are not going to the anterior lobe secreting the various hormones that, that we you talked about yeah. earlier, then, which we are interested, such as the activation of the adrenal gland that Selye was talking about in response to stress. But what did Selye call this? He had a term for it. It was like the f- first The first, first mediator. Reaction, first mediator. Right. The first, first mediator. You are quite right. So his spiel was always, well, what's the first mediator stimulating the pituitary to secrete ACTH, which had just been isolated by somebody called C.H. Lee at Berkeley, and who came to Selye's laboratory. I helped C.H. Lee to prepare some ACTH from pituitary extracts and so on. So we knew that much, but the connection was still missing. <clears throat> but it was also known, and again, Harris was made a major role uh, in the evolution of that knowledge, that there were some very unusual, very strange capillary vessels going from the floor of the hypothalamus, the floor of the brain, and eventually reaching through the pituitary stalk, reaching the anterior lobe of the pituitary. Why not going to the vasopressin oxytocin. So the anatomy of that was pretty well understood. Well, relatively well. But they had been questioned as to what was the direction of the blood in those capillaries. Some people was it going from the pituitary yes, to the brain exactly. or backwards? And uh, the results, uh, uh, Harris, in collaboration with a woman from, Swiss, from Sweden called Dora Jacobson, did a series of experiments in which they cut the pituitary stalk and put a little piece of paper 
or something, so that the two the the, the two hands would not communicate. Uh, what's the word? Uh, would not reconstitute themselves. And uh, they show that all the function of the pituitary would disappear. But if they remove the little plastic thing and so on, and the small vessels would grow back, then the pituitary function would start again. So it was obvious that uh, there, was, there were some molecules coming from the hypothalamus, most likely through those little uh, capillary vessels, going to the anterior lobe of the pituitary, and being the carriers of whatever message would stimulate the function of <coughs> the pituitary. So uh, in those days, uh, the main attraction, uh, because of my days with Célier, was to know what is this first, first mediators stimulating the response to stress. And uh, there was somebody else in Célier's laboratory, a French-Canadian uh, postdocs like me, by the name of Claude Fortier, who also had been interested in this idea. And he had actually uh, done a series of experiments where he would remove the anterior lobe of the pituitary of rats, which is really, really easy to do, and implant that in the anterior chamber of the eye, looking at what would happen with the secretion of adrenals and mm. so on. And he confirmed that those glands in the anterior chamber of the eye, which would grow perfectly well, would not secrete uh, ACTH or whatever. So the, the, you know, the, the room was set, so to speak, for really going after this mediator, this first mediator. And we knew... Uh, Can I just... Was, was Célier convinced that the first mediator was, mm. based on everything you've said, was coming from the hypothalamus? Oh. Yes, Célier was fairly convinced of that, but he had no idea. He was never really interested in actual mechanisms of action. He was more a general, general concept uh, person. And the older he, get, he got, he became more and more involved in this theory of unified concept of medicine and so on. And uh, actually in, in Célier's laboratory... Uh, you know, there was no such thing as a, what should I say, uh, there were no instruments of what we expect to find. There was certainly no column, there was no column chromatography. No, absolutely not, absolutely not, there was no such thing. So, that's when I decided that I should really leave uh, Célier's place and go somewhere else. And because of this Markle Fellowship, that I mentioned earlier, uh, the $50,000 that were part of the, the thing could be taken wherever I would go. And uh, I somehow decided I could try to talk to uh, the chairman of physiology at Yale. His name escapes me at the moment. And so I went to talk to him in Nouveau-Celliers, of course, and told him what I was interested in and so on. And uh, eventually he said, fine. So since I was bringing the money with me, uh, it was no Why problem. Why yeah. I forgot his name. And uh, came it. back to, uh, to Montreal. Mm -hmm. And uh, by that time, I was married. Uh, I had married Lucienne. 
uh, in, if I may use the word, strange circumstances. It turns out that uh, before that happened, three of us young people in Célier's laboratory became acutely ill with TB. We never knew exactly where that tuberculosis came from. There were some monkeys in the lab next door. So we never knew exactly. What one of the fellows died very fast. Another one had a lobectomy. And I turned out to have meningitis. Was this, I'm trying to remember, was this during, was this before antibiotics, before streptomycin or after streptomycin? Well, I'm coming to that. Okay. <clears throat> it turns out that this was the year after Waxman had described uh, streptomycin and dihydrostreptomycin. So when the diagnosis was pulled, I, uh, and Célier was of help to find the local physicians and so on, wonderful French-Canadian. So I was taken to the, uh, to the what was the name of the hospital? Notre-Dame Hospital. And uh, I was well taken care of. I had spinal tap every day for 30 days, <laughs> injection of the hydro. Lucien had nothing to do with that. And uh, <laughs> Lucien was there, and I, I survived so well that I married the nurse. <laughs> <laughs> and here she is. Worked out okay. Worked out okay. And uh, all of this brings us back to what? To Yale. Oh, yes. So I told her, okay, so we'll move to New Haven to be in Yale and so on. And it, maybe two days later, just before we were supposed to, to, uh, to leave, uh, we had a visit of somebody whom I had met in Celia's laboratory, who was a, a Quaker. He was a rare, very high level in the Quaker things and so on. And uh, he had come to talk to Célier. Uh, and Célier didn't want to talk to him. He had asked me, go talk to him. So I told him. And we established a very pleasant relationship. And two days before we were going to, to Yale, he showed up in Montreal. And he said, may I have dinner with you? So we said, of course. So Lucien Adorio said, so we had dinner with us. And uh, he said, I understand you're going to Yale. I said, how would you know? Well, he said, I have my pipes. And he said, you don't want to go to Yale. There's no future for you there. I couldn't believe it. He said, you want to go to Baylor College of Medicine. I said, well, I never heard of it. <laughs> uh, where is it? Well, he said, it's in Houston. I said, where, where is Houston? <laughs> oh, it's, it's in Texas. Well, I said, at least I knew where that was. And he kept talking and so on. These people really want, need somebody like you. I've already talked to them. And he literally put me on the plane to go to, to, to Houston. And that was in early spring, I remember. There were still meters of snow in Montreal. Arrived in Houston. There were azaleas blooming all over the place. The people at Baylor were wonderful. Mike DeBakey had just joined the, the place. <clears throat> and the chairman of the Department of Physiology was Hebel Hoff, whose name I recognized from what he had published about the respiratory center and what the work he had done with Sterling and, uh, in England. And uh, they talked to me about joining the group at Baylor. And, 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 you know, as I wrote someplace, I think there was 
plenty of space, plenty of money, plenty of goodwill. So when I flew back to Montreal, I told Lucien, you know, let's go to Texas. So we actually, we moved to uh, Baylor College of Medicine, to Houston. Uh, by that time, when was that? That was 63. No, what am I talking about? Uh, Probably 1952. Yeah, that was 58 or 59. Yeah, 58. Uh, so we had one little baby, uh, our oldest daughter, Chantal. So we moved to Houston and to Baylor and everything went well. Yeah, where you were for nearly 20 years. Absolutely. So if, can we just I'd get back to the, the, the issue about what these, what the first mediator or the other molecules um, in the hypothalamus were. Can you say a little bit about how, how strong, because I know you've written that you, you had basically by this time convinced yourself that these molecules must be peptides. Was the experience with oxytocin and vasopressin an important motivation for that? Why were you, why, why were you Absolutely, so... Absolutely, it was one of the motivation. The other <clears throat> was a lecture which I had had at McGill by somebody called David Thompson, who was teaching in this part of, of physiology. And uh, he had said <clears throat> that if you consider the embryologic origin of the various tissues... Uh, glands coming of being of ectodermic origin always make proteins or peptides. Uh, tissues coming from the mesoderm make steroids, and tissues from uh, uh, the uh, the endoderm uh, make uh, 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 small peptides, but mostly with amino acids like tyroxine and so on. So that was the concept that, especially since Duvigno had been so successful uh, with uh, vasopressin and oxytocin. And there was one more point, which was very rarely mentioned. In the 20s, there was this American physiologist of sort, well, who had observed that extract, crude extracts of the posterior pituitary would produce this antidiuresis, and extracts of the apothalamus uh, would also do that. Moreover, he had actually shown that, uh, yeah, it was mostly uh, work on the melanophores. Crude extracts of the pituitary would expand melanophore, the mm -hmm. frog skin, and extracts of the, of the apothalamus would do the same. So this was the concept that if we really were looking for some novel molecule, doing this stimulation of the pituitary, most likely it would be peptide. By that time, uh, I had this laboratory at Baylor, which was a sizable laboratory. And I knew all along that if we were to characterize any one of these then unknown molecules, I did not have the knowledge of the chemistry to do that, that I should work with a colleague, a collaborator, a colleague, who would be a chemist. And sure enough, one day, I was giving this talk at Baylor about all of this, and this young fellow called Walter Hearn from the Department of Biochemistry. Who was a biochemist. Who was a biochemist, came to me and he said, why don't we work together? He said, it should be real easy to, to, to do that. Well, I said, more power to you. So he joined me in, in the lab. Um, 
and where we started started uh, making these crude extracts of the hypothalamus from sheep. Uh, Can we just talk about <clears throat> two things about that? So first of all, I know from the story, so we're talking about peptides and, and how uh, common or uncommon you thought they were. I, one of the amusing things for me was uh, an anecdote when you very first started off this biochemistry, keeping in mind where you ended up with millions upon <laughs> millions of hypothalami, that you thought you'd start the first experiments with 10 or 20. Well, of course, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, we could show biological activity, which was the only way we could follow in those days, the bioassays. And it became obvious very, very rapidly, though, that as we were pure, as Walter Hearn was purifying these molecules with very simple paper chromatography and so on, the more purified we got the, the, the stuff, the less and less material we saw. We couldn't even see a, a, a chromatography stain on, on the paper. So to cut a long story short, as you intimated, eventually we collected in the lab at Baylor uh, several millions of sheep brains, of sheep hypothalamus. We got only the fragment of the hypothalamus because <clears throat> uh, what I did uh, was to go to the local slaughterhouses. And by law, every slaughterhouse, and I'm sure it's still true uh, now, had to have a vet full-time. So I would talk to the vet about what I was interested in, so we would go get a couple of brains uh, from the... Uh, a sheep and so on. So I would show him exactly what I, uh, the fragment of the hypothalamus, which was not that small, by the way. I would say, I would say uh, probably three centimeter cube, which the, the pituitary stalk sticking out of it, which was easy to, to recognize. Identify. Is that why, so many people ask, why, of all the animals that are slaughtered, why did you pick sheep as opposed to cows, for example? Oh, okay. And there is a reason for that, because I had checked the anatomy of the skull, of a sheep skull, a cow skull, and a pig skull. And as you know, the pituitary is located in this little anatomical uh, receptacle which we call the cella tersica. And uh, the cella tersica is essentially three or four uh, prongs of bone with the space for the pituitary at the bottom, and it turns out that the sheep skull, the, the, what's called the clinoids of this, uh, are practically flat, so that when you remove the, the brain from the skull of the pituitary, of the, uh, of the animal, animal, you don't damage the hypothalamus, whereas if you do that uh, out of the skull of pigs or cows, the clinoids, as we call them, the apophysis, are so so tall that you tear. damage the fragment, it tears the, the hypothalamus. So that's why we collect the cheap hypothalamus. Okay, so I want to return to, um, to the issue of basically getting your lab going um, uh, and working on CRF. As we were mentioning before, this was, this was the releasing factor that everyone was interested in initially. It's the, it was the... the the releasing factor that you focused your lab on. 
And in fact, it, as we know now, it subsequently turned out to be the most difficult one. So um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the trial and error of that process. And then I'd also like to hear your views about whether you think that kind of science could actually be done today, given the pressures to publish, the pressures to obtain grants, et cetera, et cetera. So CRF. And yeah, let's make sure we come to the latest oh, point that you mentioned, right. to be sure. <clears throat> okay, so we were still definitely looking for the first mediator that Silly had been talking about for so many years. And in those days, the only way we could look at the secretion of the pituitary hormone was essentially with what we call bioassay. I think this is very important. This so, is an extremely important point. Many people, many young people will not realize you had to do these experiments in animals. Absolutely. And a bioassay can give you a result in usually two days when it's very good. Some people use bioassay that would take a month to get the response and so on. So uh, the only way we could look for this CRF was by studying the secretion of ACTH, which itself was uh, ascertained by looking at the amount of ascorbic acid in an extract of the adrenal gland of hypophysectomized rats. So it's a very indirect Absolutely. Expensive because you had to buy many the, rats. Uh, hundreds of these hypophysectomized rats, which, by the way, you could buy as such. You, I knew how to do it. But when you need about a hundred for a... For, for a an, data point. <laughs> for a data point. So it was easier to buy them as such. Mm -hmm. And eventually, uh, I actually wrote later that the whole field of neuroendocrinology uh, definitely would have moved faster if we had not been after this CRF. If you'd picked another release. Absolutely. TRF. Such example. as the one for the thyroid uh, secretion because then I designed myself a totally novel bioassay based on measuring the radioactive iodine uh, that was available that you inject and the animal will make thyroid hormone, which is now labeled with the radioiodine. So I made a bioassay again for the thyrotropin releasing factor, which was extremely short. I got, res got results in, in four hours in those days, and that's why it activated considerably the, 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 the whole field when I decided to forget about the CRF part uh, and move to TRF. Uh, I also decided to move away from the CRF thing because nobody was going anywhere with it. By that time, I had received a, a letter from somebody called Andrew Shelley, who was at that time a postdoc. No, no, he was, he was actually a student, right? a student of somebody called Mary Safran in Montreal, whom I knew well, who was also interested in this concept of stress response and so on. And Shelley was getting his PhD in the next four months, and he suggested, he asked me if I could take him to the lab, to my lab, and we would work together to, you know, to proceed. And I, he was a biochemist. His title or his PhD was in biochemistry. 
So to me, it was an ideal arrangement because Hearn, who had been the first uh, chemist in my group, had left for family reason to go back to Iowa or someplace. Well, anyway, so Shelley asked, could he come and we would work together and so So I said, by all means. I wrote to Saffron, who was his boss at that time, who gave him a good recommendation. So Shelley uh, came to my lab. That would have been in 1950, uh, 57 or 58. And uh, we started getting all the equipment that he needed, that he wanted to uh, go on with these purifications of uh, the, these peptides in the extracts of the hypothalamus. We started building with Shelley some of the largest chromatography column which I have ever heard of. You know, like, I remember like three meter yes. tall and two and, to three meter tall. Yeah, columns. sure. And I actually, I had heard... What, what, you needed a special room to put some of these things in. No, we just went, went through, through the, the ceiling. Went through the We went through the <laughs> ceiling. Absolutely. And that was at Baylor. We just went through the ceiling. And uh, I actually had heard somehow about these new molecules for separation called, uh, well, it turned out that what we call cephadex. Uh, mm -hmm the carboxymethylcellulose mm -hmm. or derivatives. So I sent Shelley so to Sweden. So Cephadex was a new resin at this time. Well, yes, absolutely. So I, because I had little money from NIH and so on, I sent Shelley to, uh, to Stockholm where he, he spent a few days with, uh, oh, the name escapes me, and eventually I went to Uppsala where the people making this new... Uh, uh, new, these new resin, substances, yeah. resins, where so, and he came back bringing about a pound of that uh, cephadex. So I remember taking, telling him, let me take one half of that, which I will take with me to Paris, because at that time uh, we had moved to the Collège de France for, for uh, because I had been invited to go back to France and so on. And there was a laboratory, a significant lab, well, uh, in Paris and so on. So anyway. But you maintained your lab at, at, the, at, at Baylor. At the request of the chairman at Baylor, of Hebelhoff, I had maintained the laboratory uh, working and Shelley was there. And by the way, there was NIH money in those days, which was uh, sufficient for what we were needing in the laboratory. And there also was, this was Texas. We had the, the Houston Foundation, the private monies, which, you know, uh, would also help to, uh, and available, uh, very, very relatively easy and so on. So uh, Shelley kept working in the lab while I was actually commuting between Baylor and the Collège de France. Uh, I did that for three years, as a matter of fact. And uh, with Shelley doing in, in charge of, being in charge of the purification, uh, a couple of, of students were uh, in the lab were doing some of the bioassays, which I had, had told you I had organized. And um, Shelley told me that, eventually showed me the result that he had purified two peptides 
uh, with uh, corticotropin, with ACTH releasing activities, which he called alpha CRF and beta CRF. He published that, and my name was also on that paper, but since this was chemistry, Shelley's name was, was first. And uh, I, I was never totally happy with that because these two molecules, which he called alpha and beta CRF, were uh, close to the sequence that C.H. Lee had just shown for uh, what uh, he called the lipotropin. There were sequences that looked like MSH and so on, mm-hmm. so I was a little uncomfortable about all of this. But meanwhile, uh, most of my own efforts were in, in France, in Paris, where we had moved, as I said earlier. And there was a laboratory at the Collège de France where uh, they were, uh, there was a very good chemist called Jutis. They, I found over there, I met over there, a young biologist by the name of Edward Sackies, who turned out to be an incredibly brilliant uh, person with whom we worked, we worked together for five, six years, and um, the work in Colors de France was still on CRF, though you, that you had not made the transition to well, to, to but CRF. Uh, to the contrary, when I started the laboratory and moved to Paris, and since Shelley was working on the CRF mm-hmm. thing, I said that's the opportunity to look for something, something else. different. And uh, we knew by that time that there had to be a specific molecule for the secretion of the tyrotropin, the tyroid, yeah. and another for the, gona- the gonads, the gonadotropin. The, all of these were to be expected. And also, uh, based on work which had been published for many years, something stimulating growth, the overall growth of, of, of the organism. And it was while in Paris that I designed an incredibly simple bioassay for the tyrotropin releasing factor. Uh, there was availability of radioiodine in, in Paris in those days. So we would, I prepared that assay, showed how it worked, and we could get results of something that would stimulate the secretion of TSH in half a day, which was an enormous advantage. And it was such a simple assay so that when, for various academic reasons, and I never knew exactly why things did not go well in Paris, uh, because the work in the lab was going superbly well. And, and the way the, the man who was in, it was his uh, division of Collège de France, uh, didn't really follow what we were doing. So I decided that we would just go back. Move back to and so that's where Lucien Luster Chateau of the Prunet and the But I know part of this story also was you were talking about Shelley visiting Sweden and coming back with a pound or two of Cephadex. Sure. When you returned from Paris to Houston, you had in your luggage how many half a million sheep? Okay, because uh, while in Paris, I had learned. Uh, that there was this company in France, I'd forgotten the name of it, in the suburb of Paris, uh, whose business was to sell uh, tissues collected in slaughterhouses 
to various people, you know, some people wanted the uh, bones, the other wanted cartilage, others wanted the whole brain, others wanted I don't know what. And I had seen, uh, I had, I went to, to talk to these people. I said, how do you do that? So they showed me in, in, the, uh, in a slaughterhouse how they would actually remove the, the brain, cut the hypothalamus, and so on. And when, we, and, and when we came back from Paris back to Houston, I carried or with me or somehow over half a million of sheep brain frozen solids on dry ice. They were, oh, I thought they were lyophilized. No, they were frozen. No, 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 no. They were frozen on, well, you may be right. I've, yeah, because be, you developed, basically, this was one of your innovations, right, to store yes, these things initially, was right. these large desiccators to, to yes, lyophilize. Yes, you are quite right. They were lyophilized. But still, half well, a million yeah, is a sure. half a million. And I do remember, before uh, the, knowing the date when we were going to go back, it, several weeks before that, I remember going to the American embassy uh, in Paris, having to do with importing. You had to explain. Yeah, <laughs> to explain all of that. And eventually I got a permit to go through with all of those things. So, you, so at that point you came back to Baylor and the, the, um, Shally by that time had left the lab. I had up told Shally that we are going nowhere uh, and that he should look for another part of his life, which he did, of course. And uh, he became, uh, he was hired by the VA hospital in New Orleans. In, uh, in New Orleans. So where he established his own laboratory. So Still the, working on CRF, by the way, right. for several for years. For quite a while. So, but at that point, you basically turned the focus pretty much to TRF. Absolutely. And that's, now can we say, you keep talking about bioassays, but, you know, for, for scientists, bi- for biologists, of my generation and younger, a bioassay is cells and culture. So can you say a little bit about how eventually for all of these releasing factors, you transitioned from, from you know, basically things to guide the, the purification that were based on animal assays to things in cell culture. How did, how did that come about? We started taking fragments of the pituitary and put them in vitro. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the postdocs in, in the group at that time, no, he was actually working for his PhD degree, what, Wiley Vale, mm-hmm. who decided that this could be improved and so on. So eventually uh, th- th- there was a paper that appeared in the literature from a group around somebody called George Sayers, Mm-hmm. I still remember that name, who they had started uh, removing adrenal cortex, the adrenal gland, mm-hmm. and uh, they separated the cortex and eventually separated the cells, grow, uh, put them in tissue culture, and they could get steroids in the culture fluid. So with Wiley, I remember saying, you know, why don't we do that and see if we could get pituitary is insane. And uh, Wiley did a series of experiments which uh, went very well, very fast. And he actually published a paper uh, showing that these monolayers of pituitary cells could grow for days and weeks 
and not secrete any hormone. Right. But if you put a fragment of hypothalamus in the tube or, or an, some extract, then you can measure TSH, which we had decided to go after by that time. And it was a revolutionary method, so to speak. But the most revolutionary came a few years later when uh, Saul Bergson and Rosaline Yallo uh, published their first result with what they call radioimmunoassays, which were actually an incredibly simple uh, method, but on top of that, were thousands of times more sensitive than what we did with our bioassay. So the jump was not immediate. What I did do was to combine the, uh, the concept of the bioassay, but eventually the ultimate point was a radioimmunoassay, say, for growth hormone, for ACTH, somatostat, and so on. And that's how, uh, when we started looking for the growth hormone releasing factor, that's another interesting point. Uh, there was a new postdoc in the lab from a Canadian called Paul Brazo, and I had asked, told him that we would be looking for this growth hormone releasing factor. So uh, we had set up a radioimmunoassay for growth hormone, and Paul was doing the tissue culture with Wiley and so on, Wiley Vale and so on. And uh, when we started looking, adding hypothalamic extract to, to this, uh, well, I'm now jumping to the somatostatin okay. story. Well, we'll come back to the TRF. Because you weren't after somatostatin originally. Somatostatin no. was, was the opposite. Well, of exactly. Were we were looking for a growth hormone releasing factor. So we did the fragment of hypothalamus in the culture, and Paul Brazo and Wiley would measure the growth hormone in the tissue, you know, in the culture, fluid, and so on. And uh, the more fragment of hypothalamus we would add, the less... It was going the wrong less, way. Yeah, so I remember telling Paul, come on, Paul, why don't you work properly? Do it again. So he repeated the experiment, and a week later came back with exactly the same result, showing a decrease of the secretion of growth hormone by those hypothalamic extracts. So I do remember we got together the group in the laboratory. That was, by the way, by that time, that was at the Soak Institute. We said either it's a major discovery or it's a, it's a small discovery or a big problem. So since we didn't see any problem, we said, well, that's, maybe it's an interesting discovery. So we decided to go ahead, and uh, the, the chemist by that time, after Charlie had left, was somebody who, with whom we got along very well, who was Roger Burgess. And uh, in no time, in less than two weeks, we isolated uh, a totally new molecule, which, uh, I repeat, we were by that time at the Soak Institute, where we had access to mass spectrometer, and NMR. So we showed that this was a unique molecule which was composed of 14 amino acids and uh, one by one Burgess sequenced the, uh, the, the molecule and we got the complete structure of this molecule which 
uh, Nicholas Ling and Jean Rivier, who were part of the group, synthesized, and we showed that the synthetic material uh, had the full biological activity to inhibit the secretion of growth hormone. And that's when I named somatostatin. And we published that, of course. In uh, When was somatostatin published? That uh, would have been 72. I was going to say 72. early 70s. Yeah. That's correct. Early, yeah, 72. So in that short period of time, you basically <clears> went from, uh, in a 12-year period, from working with these first giant columns of Cephadex that you had to get from the manufacturer in Sweden to yeah. having NMR, FPLC, HPLC, peptide synthesis in all lab going in your lab. Absolutely. So sure. a, an amazing set of developments over a, over a very, very short period of time. So it's because in uh, 63, was it 63? No, 65, I think. Well, we had concentrated enough on the tyrotropin releasing on TRF uh, that we should really go ahead with that and find out what kind of molecule that was. And we isolated small amounts, less than a milligram of that molecule. And uh, the concept was still that it was a peptide, and sure enough, we had all the, the, the color reagent, the poly reagent, ninhydrin, and so on. We knew that we were looking at some sort of at, at some peptide or another. And uh, meanwhile, Charlie, after he left my laboratory, he had learned quite a few things at that time, such as getting large quantities of hypothalamus to go after these things, and he made arrangements through the VA system with some company, I forgot the name of it, where we, they actually co collected pig brain mm -hmm. rather than sheep brain. So uh, they went ahead in their own lab and, and, and uh, kept going on for the purification of TRF, so were we. And uh, there were really no exchange between the two labs. If anything, it was more competition than anything else. Uh, we became convinced that TRF was not a, a usual peptide because we could not destroy the activity with the classic proteolytic enzymes until Burgess said, well, maybe that peptide is protected both at one end of the, the linear peptide or another. By that time, we were convinced there was a famous meeting uh, called by the NIH that took place in Tucson, Arizona, I remember, where they invited, NIH had invited uh, quite a few people working in this field of hypothalamic molecules mm -hmm. and uh, pituitary secretion to talk about their results. And particularly, uh, they, well, they had invited Shelley and his laboratory, and me and my lab, to discuss where we were, because I learned by the, the grapevine that NIH was getting sick and tired of giving money to these laboratories looking for this brain hormone that it's never been showed up. 10 years now. Right? Yes, absolutely. So we said we have to take that very seriously. So the meeting was, I repeat, in Tucson, Arizona, 
on such and such dates. And 10 days before the date of that meeting, working with Vergus in chemistry and, CA and, and Jean Rivier and, and Nicolas Sling, we became convinced that we had unquestionably isolated a molecule that was the tyrotropin releasing factor and that it was composed of three amino acids. Getting back to, to TRF, you've, you've even, even though you, we say we were talking about 10 years for the, the, all the peptides, even for TRF we're talking about a large number of years of effort. You've got a purified protein. Now you have to do this analysis. Basically, I've always been struck by this. You have something that's very, very precious, and in order to figure out what the sequence of the peptide is, you've got to cut it up or you've got to do something. Sure. Because you, 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 you're saying you felt under the gun from the, the NIH you've got yeah. it, and from the competition to actually show something. So you do this acid hydrolysis, and as you were saying, you end up with only three amino acids. Um, and subsequent to that, you did the analysis basically where you showed part of the reason you couldn't cut this thing up was, A, you only had two peptide bonds to work with, and the amino acids at both ends are modified to protect this small peptide. Um, what did it, you know, you, you've spoken about this before, but I think, you know, th there's several things that are important about the TRF story. One is it was, the, as you just said, was the first bona fide, unmitigated success of the story of neuroendocrinology. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, which I think is more fundamental, which I, I, I've read something about how you've, you've written about this, is that you basically know how this system works. You have this moment of discovery, so, and how, how magical it is. So maybe you could just sp speak a little bit about those issues. Well, yes. And... Uh... I come back to what we said a few minutes earlier, that the NIH was really calling for this, me calling this meeting in Tucson just to really know what was, what were they going to put their, what had they been putting their money into. Right. And there is no question that we in, in our lab at Baylor in those days, we could not ignore the competition from Shelley's group. They were rather groups in, in England, in, in Czechoslovakia, in Japan, also had been claiming to do this, but they were, uh, they, they were of no concern. But the competition with Shelley's group uh, was something major to us. And I remember when this meeting to, uh, in Tucson was organized by the IH, and we, uh, of course, we decided we would go. A week before, we became convinced that we had the result, we had the data, that TRF was essentially composed of three amino acids and nothing else. And uh, I remember we getting together with Wiley, uh, Wiley Vale and Roger Burgess and said, Shelley's group is going to be there also. What do we say? Do we, re, do we reveal this? Or what do we, so we said, absolutely. This is public money. This is now our knowledge. We'll publish that. We'll definitely explain that at the meeting in Tucson. And at the meeting in Tucson, Shelley was there. 
they were two other people uh, whom I had heard of, but I did not know that they were actually in relation with Shelley. When somebody called Carl Falkers, who was way older than we were, and who was a highly recognized uh, chemist. So we showed the results. The Burgess showed the results that we had gotten a week earlier. And uh, in the same lecture, as I remember, Shelley got up and said, yes, we know about these peptides. We also have found the three peptides. But I had some people... Uh, at Burke or someplace, uh, synthesize for us uh, all the multiple combination of these three amino acids, and none of them has have any biological activity. So we listened to that and we said, "How about that?" And I still remember that Burgess right then said, "You know, maybe that peptide is protected, Modified, yeah. as we say." So from that meeting. I remember calling the people at Merkin who had synthesized this thing for Charlie, asking if I could get a few milligrams or 100 micrograms of those peptides, which they had done. And, and they said, no, we gave everything to Dr. Charlie, so we don't have anything. And I remember calling from Tucson these people in Switzerland. I've forgotten. I think they were with Hoffman Laroche, Studer, and, and another fellow. And I asked them, would they synthesize this combination of the three, the three residues? They said, no problem. And within two weeks, when we got back to, uh, to uh, Baylor, to Houston, we received those peptides. And sure enough, we tested them for TR effectivity and confirmed what Shelley had said. They had no biological activity whatsoever. But by that time, Burgess had shown that the N-terminus of TRF was a protected, was a cyclized glutamic acid, paroglu, paroglutamic. So we said, well, let's see if we can uh, uh, change the, the glutamic of the synthetic molecule into a paroglu. I've forgotten how it's done. So Burgess did that. But that could be, that was, could be done chemically. So. Yeah, sure. It was a very simple chemical reaction. And sure enough, for the first time, we had a synthetic molecule of which there was no doubt about the structure that had some minor TRF activity. It was not very potent, but it had TRF activity. And uh, we said, well, this is still not the final molecule. So we published a note in the French Compte Rendu about this and so on. So we said, we now have to find the exact molecule and so on. And it was again Burgess who said, maybe the C-terminal is also blocked. So he did that by just heating in, I've forgotten exactly. I remember it was an incredibly simple procedure to, uh, to, to close the, uh, the C-terminal and purified the result, the, the material, and we had full biological activity of, of TRF, which turned out to be the is proamide. And it was the first uh, definite molecule of hypothalamic origin, stimulating, controlling one function of the pituitary gland. And the group of, and we published that, and the group of Shelley by that time had recognized that uh, they had been mistaken in considering uh, only the three residues uh, of TRF. It turned out, actually, 
and, pub and they published that uh, about six months later, that they became convinced that the three amino acids were not the real material, that it turned out that their purified material was only 30% pure. So they started thinking about the other molecules which were not peptidic in nature. And, and uh, it sort of slowed it, a great deal of what they eventually published and so on. But with this fellow Falkman, uh, Falkers, they eventually got the correct, the correct molecule and they published that. But we, we were ahead in, in my group by a couple of months, so to speak. But the point was that for the first time, there was real knowledge about the chemical structure of a totally new molecule which came from the hypothalamus because we started doing the radiomino assay, showed them in the, the, the cells of the hypothalamus, the neurons of the hypothalamus. And we actually, with radiomino assay, we were able, in collaboration with somebody who lived in, uh, in Houston, who lived in Dallas, forgotten his name, we could, they, we could take microliters from capillary blood mm -hmm. going to the pituitary. And we injected TRF uh, in, in the peripheral vein. And we could measure the increase in TSH secretion uh, right there. And in, so there was no doubt that the molecule was indeed uh, this, this three amino acid protected at both ends and was indeed to be found in, in brain. And later on, by quite a few other laboratories showed that this molecule is also in the human brain and in also in, in the brain in general. And it was really the first of these newly recognized small peptides made by nerve cells and involved in controlling functions of the endocrine uh, system, such as the pituitary. So having confirmed that, we now had to look, we said, well, uh, we have to look for the other, there must be other uh, molecules in the brain, in the hypothalamus, controlling the secretion by the pituitary of growth hormone and of the gonadotropins for secretion of the testes and the ovaries and so on. So you mentioned this, the, you know, the notion that the hypothesis for the longest time was that the brain controlled pituitary function by releasing these peptides from the hypothalamus into directly into the circulation and affecting mm -hmm. cells in the in anterior pituitary, and that the, the TRF was really the paradigm, the, the, the sort of discovery paradigm from which all else came. That, that was really the end of the phase of trying to establish a basic scientific principle. Yeah. And what you did after that was, what we used to say in molecular biology, was Hershey heaven in the sense that her, Al Hershey had this idea that heaven for him was to come into the laboratory every day, to know what experiment you were going to do, to know that the experiment would work, and to know that the result would be important. <clears throat> right? So you, but at the time you moved to the sulk, you basically had this. So I can remember even when I came to the sulk in the mid to late 80s, and I would talk to people in your lab or in Wiley's lab about some bioactivity that I thought was in the brain, they would often say, 
maybe we can look in a side fraction of our purifications for X, Absolutely. Y, Z. And sure. that's, a, you can maybe speak a little bit about this. This is essentially what you did <clears throat> um, to look at these side fractions for peptides that were a slightly different size, had different charges, have different chromatographic properties, and many, many, many of these came out of these initial uh, purifications for TRF, right? Absolutely. And also, uh, you are raising a very important point. Uh, don't forget that we had collected over the years at Baylor leading to the, the TRF conclusion. We had collected millions of sheep brain. We had collected kilograms of extracts and hundreds of grams of grams of various of a series of fractions. And we kept every single one of those fractions uh, solidly frozen in the liquid nitrogen tank because I suspected that these other molecules we were looking for would be in one of these, of these fractions. And that's how, uh, very early when we came to the Salk Institute, we, brought, we had brought with us all those extracts, all and within six months, we had located a fraction of these hundreds of fractions that had the activity of releasing gonadotropins, uh, which in those days we we are looking only at the pituitary hormone called uh, luteinizing luteizing hormone. hormone. We call it LRF. LRF. And uh, we started looking. Uh, that firm because we were now very well equipped at the Soak Institute in terms of separation of these peptides, establishing structure with the mass spectrometer and, and synthesizing those things and so on. So in um, a few months, we had purified um, microgram amounts of this molecule that was stimulating the secretion of gonadotropins and uh, would stimulate the, sequ- the uh, size of the ovary in the bioassays that we were still using. But we also had set up radioimmunoassays, which had just been described by Burson and Yellow for these pituitary hormones, which were all proteins, so that we had improved immensely the... Uh, the, the the functioning of these bioassays, which were far more, we could get results far more rapidly than in the old days when we were looking at uh, the, as- the renal ascorbic acid. So uh, we became convinced that we had actually isolated one of these molecules, new molecules, uh, stimulating the gonadotropin secretion. Then the, the results showed us that we had at least nine amino acid residues in that material we would hydrolyze. And, well, let me mention something for the history. It was sometime in the spring of that year, uh, there was a meeting of the endocrine, the annual meeting of the endocrine society. And I received, I was asked to be a reviewer of all the abstracts that were sent. <laughs> so I said, by all means. We had not sent an abstract because we really kept working on this thing. And um, as this bunch of abstracts came to my office, there was one from Shiley's laboratory in which they were claiming that they were going to show at the meeting that 
they had isolated uh, uh, the, the LRF molecule stimulating secretion of gonadotropin, and that it was composed of nine amino acids, just like we had concluded. And they showed, they gave the list of their, the amino acids, which were the same as we had here. So I had a, a small moment in which I said, you know, I now know what's in Shelley's cup. He doesn't know what we have. So I said, let's be honest. So I wrote a private, I wrote a letter to Shelley telling him, you know, as part of your abstracts, I know what the data in your laboratory. I can tell you that uh, even though we, re- we had mentioned the results at the NIH, which was funding our research, we have the same nine amino acids in, uh, in our molecule. So let's, let's move from there on. But do know that I know what you know. So which other it was the fair thing to do. And the rules were that if you submitted an abstract to the Endocrine Society, you were not supposed to publish the results until after the meeting. So we so went to the meeting, which was in San Francisco. And I remember I was chairing a session of neuroendocrinology. And Shelley was, uh, was one of the speakers. And I still remember to this day, uh, as I repeat, I was chairing the session. I called Shelley's... Uh, uh, to come and give his lecture, his talk, and uh, which was supposed to be on the sequence of the LRF, and Shelley showing on the screen the sequence of ten residues. We had missed one tryptophan <laughs> because we had used only acidic uh, uh, acid hydrolysis, and it was the the first time that Shelley actually showed the complete and correct sequence of, uh, of his porcine origin LRS. Was there a difference in bioactivity between them? No, absolutely not. They were absolutely identical. So when we came back to, to Baylor, to uh, the Soak so. Institute, that evening we were somewhat crestfallen and said, well, let's do it again, let's look. So uh, we isolated a few more micrograms, uh, literally maybe 80, 100 micrograms of the decapeptide. And sure enough, showed that there was a tryptophan. And Nick and Jean Rivier sequenced it uh, entirely and we published. But uh, the credit in this case definitely goes to Shelley's group. And uh, it was essentially because uh, just arrived in Shelley's laboratory uh, three months earlier was this extraordinary Japanese chemist called Matsuo, Hirosaki Matsuo, who had been invited not even by Shelley, but by uh, somebody who was in his lab, who was Japanese, Arimura, what's his name? And uh, it was Matsuo who actually recognized that there was an additional tryptophan to the nine amino acids that Shelley had written about 
and which we also had seen. And they actually sequenced the, the, the decapeptide and made a rapid synthesis of it. it and, and we were able to publish the right sequence ahead of us by a few months. So we've talked about these, these uh, you know, neuroendocrinology and the peptide biology of neuroendocrinology from the standpoint of the original scientific thinking, as to say, the brain-controlling activity of, of the pituitary gland. But as you got along in this, particularly in the case with somatostatin, and started to make good antibody reagents for this molecule, and started yeah. to hand the antibody out, you found that, in fact, you made another, I think, fundamental aspect of this discovery, was that it wasn't just the hypothalamic pituitary axis that these peptides were operating in, it was many other p- parts of the body. So maybe you could just yes, say I, a little I, bit I was, about that. I was sir. coming to that, okay. too, of course. Okay, so uh, we now are looking for the the unknown hypothalamic factor controlling the secretion of growth hormone. And by the way, Shelley's laboratory was also doing the same thing. And uh, so, as I said earlier, we started looking at this crude extract and found out that uh, we inhibited the secretion of growth hormone rather than stimulating it, and eventually came to the, as I said earlier, the isolation and structure of somatostatin, and we published that. And uh, we still had to look. We still, I still wanted to know. Somebody wanted to know There's what be a was factor the it. releasing factor for growth hormone. And Shelley kept publishing papers about that, including one in which he gave a structure. So we said, "Well, we are way behind." Until we found out a couple of days the way thing, that uh, the people at Merck had called him two days earlier and said, "You know." That sequence you publish is a fragment of hemoglobin, so there's a problem. <laughs> so it turned out that he was, they were completely mistaken. Actually, I've always been puzzled by that because they were using a bioassay in this case, which was so strange. It had been designed by somebody in Chelly's lab called Mura, in which <clears throat> they were measuring the content of growth hormone in the pituitary of, in, of a bioassay animal by measuring the, the, the tibial, the, the, the thickness of the, the tibial cartilage, rather while we were already using radioimmunoassay for growth hormone. This is a good illustration of your... Absolutely. It's only as good as your assay. Exactly, exactly. So we decided that we would go ahead with this growth hormone releasing factor after the somatostatin story. And uh, by that time, we, um, it was well understood in clinical medicine that acromegaly was a disease uh, involving a tumor benign, in general, tumor of the pituitary making too much growth hormone. Mm-hmm. I remember being invited by the French Endocrine Society to give a lecture for that year's meeting. Mm-hmm. And I gave that talk in the same amphitheater where, uh, oh, what's his name? It's embarrassing. I first described the, the clinical syndrome of acromegaly. Of being associated with the pituitary. Case. Yes. And I remember telling the audience, you know that there are also some very rare cases 
of acromegaly with no pituitary tumor. So you were aware of these from the medical literature? Yes, from the medical literature, that some of these acromegalic patients have a tumor somewhere in the pancreas, in the lung, or in the gut that makes growth hormone instead of the, the pituitary, because tumors can do all sorts of wild things. But there are also some very rare cases, too, we are known at that time, where patients have a tumor, they are acromegalics, they have no pituitary tumor, but they do have tumors, but that don't contain, that do not contain growth hormone when you extract, make a biopsy and so on. So I said, perhaps these peripheral tumors secrete the same molecule which in the hypothalamus normally stimulate the secretion of growth hormone. And I still remember, it's so strange, telling to this audience, I knew they were mostly clinicians, in this lecture room in Paris, I said, if you ever see in your clientele, in your practice or in the hospital, a, a patient like this, call me on the phone. I send you a round-trip ticket to, uh, to San Diego by return mail so long as you bring me the tumor. And sure enough... Did the NIH pay for that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> listen, what happened was that about six months later, I got a letter from a woman whom I'd never met who was a young resident in Lyon, in medical school, saying, yes, we have a patient who is acromegalic. Well, I immediately said on the phone, well, you know, my offer still stands. What's your address? I'll send you a round-trip ticket. She said, no, no, we have never done this thing. Why don't you come and get with us for that tumor and so on, to get that tumor? So I said, I cannot go, but I will send somebody who really will do it well. And there was in the lab at that time at, Bell, at, at the Institute a woman by the name of Fusun Zetin. She spoke perfect French because she had been raised in, uh, by some schools in Switzerland. But she was a fine biologist and she was in my lab in charge of a series of tissue culture uh, projects which we had. So I sent Fusun to Lyon to get together with this lady uh, whose name I may or may not have mentioned a minute ago, who was the physician in, in, in charge of that patient. And sure enough, Fusun went to Lyon, came back a week later, with a, uh, here again, I had to go through the custom business. I'm just thinking to myself, how much of your career is dependent on your shipping? Absolutely. You know, biological materials, exactly. parts of bodies back So Fusun came States. back with uh, about 150 grams of human flesh. Big tumor. That was a big tumor. And when we splashed, it was so interesting. They were actually three or four different, well isolated from one another. So we started taking fragments of... And by that time, we had good radioimmunoassay for growth hormone, for somatostatin. And uh, some part of that tumor were loaded with somatostatin, pancreatic tumor. Other parts were so rich in releasing growth hormone. I said, here we are. And in less than a month, with that tumor, we had isolated a totally new molecule, 
uh, which turn out to be the growth hormone releasing factor. Actually, I should say uh, that if, while this was going on, I heard through, I think it was through Wiley or directly, I forget exactly how, that there was a, a British uh, physician in, um, somewhere in Virginia who also had found a patient uh, who was a, it was a young woman actually who was acromegalic and had a uh, tumor in the lung or someplace and uh, that he had shown that he had been taking measuring growth hormone in her blood while they were removing the tumor and when the tumor was removed the growth hormone level had fallen practically to normal and I got together with Wiley I forgot exactly how this was handled. So he, Wiley, got part of the tumor and I got the other half. The other half. And uh, out of the tumor of French origin, we isolated this molecule, which was the growth hormone releasing factor, which is, I've forgotten, is it 42? 42, 41 40, or 42. 41 or 42 residues. And established the full sequence, again, with Jean Ribier and Nicolas Link. And the tumor from which we had gotten uh, along with, with Wiley and so on uh, probably had not been kept exactly the same way because both Wiley's lab and our lab isolated a molecule which was missing one or two residues but which was still biologically active. There were a couple of residues missing on the C-terminal. So it's how the structure of this growth hormone releasing factor was eventually established and now we knew that the hypothalamus was secreting novel molecules for the secretion of tyrotropin, the gonadotropin, and growth hormone. And the one which we had started with, the corticotropin, was still up in the air. Right. And as you know, it was not done, completed, until 1981 from uh, and by Wiley Vale's uh, group who had actually moved from uh, my own laboratory. There was Jean Rivier, Catherine, his wife, Wiley Vale, and somebody else. Oh, it's embarrassing. Whose name escaped me. Uh, Joachim? Was Joachim Spies? And, and uh, Joachim Spies, the, the chemist from Germany. So they had their they group. They had his own group then. Yeah, at, still at the Soak Institute. And uh, so that's an object lesson. I mean, we we started about this at the beginning, and we we've also talked about the pressure you got from the NIH. The molecule you started with was not the molecule that founded the field and from which you had all the success. It was actually the last thing. Absolutely. To, to yeah. So after this, of course, you have an ongoing lab, and you had you had a whole career then thinking about. Other peptides that are active in the brain, sure. we should probably talk about this at least just a little bit. That is to say, the endogenous morphine-like molecules I and the enkephalin. So exactly. we should say a little bit about that. This is Yes, sure, this, because this is part of what I had been looking for for the release of growth hormone. In fact, that's, that was the only reason why I became interested in these molecules called endorphins, uh, because the, the isolation of the endorphin actually took place uh, before we knew the growth hormone releasing factor of the, of the, of the brain origin. 
uh, I knew that injecting of morphine in a patient or in an animal stimulates secretion of growth hormone in, in incredibly rapidly. So when I heard one day that there were these new molecules which I'd never heard of uh, in the brain which work like uh, opiates, the so-called opioid, and that they were actually peptides, I said, well, maybe uh, this growth hormone releasing factor uh, which we did not know what it was, except maybe it, it wasn't had a to be a peptide. <laughs> well, uh, maybe are related to these opioid peptides molecule. With Roger Burgess, we got the full sequence. We, I knew that they were because they were three size molecules with opiate-like opioid activity, and uh, we got the small one first, which had. Uh, 13 or 14 residues, 13 residues, I forget, which I call alpha endorphine because I knew that there were two more larger molecules to be characterized and so on. And I repeat, it was on, January, on December 31st, and I showed these results when I gave the Harvey Lecture in New York a week later. So this was really totally new, novel, novel results, uh, uh, given, shown to, to that audience. And uh, very rapidly it became obvious that the sequence of these endorphin was really an extraordinary thing because they were just fragments. They were all fragments of this molecule, much bigger one, isolated problem. by C.H. Lee 10 years, 15 years earlier, which he had called gamma lipotropin and whose biological activity had always been obscure. obscure. So it turned out that the, the complete sequence of these endorphins was in the gamma lipotropin. And uh, later on with this man in, in Japan, whose name escapes me again, uh, shown the, the complete, uh, you know, the biosynthesis of this very and large... Pro-hormone, yeah. pro which eventually get cleaved into ACTH and MSH and the endorphins. Right. Um, an amazing story. So I think uh, probably just to sort of uh, close things up, I'd like to get your views on, um, you know, one of the things that's always struck me about endocrinology in general and, and neuroendocrinology in, in particular is how the field... Um, grew up and matured and was successful largely outside of molecular biology. So it was really a field that was driven in the end by protein biochemistry, but in the beginning by the biology of these agents, by, in, in, in cases as we discussed, by clinical biology, by regulation of growth, sure. by regulation of... of, of um, estrous cycle by reg regulation of metabolism through thyroid hormone. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about whether you think this is real or not. And if you say it doesn't, it's irrelevant, that would be fine too. Whether your initial medical education and your exposure to medicine was at all important in A, how you chose this field, and B, your ultimate success in the field. I agree with the question, the way you asked, and also by the answer to that. Namely, that this was a limiting... F my background 
uh, which led to what we have been talking about so far, also kept me away from molecular biology. And I never made the jump because I was intellectually too lazy to do it. And somebody like Wiley did make the jump. Uh, and later on in his career, it became quite important. So there is no doubt in my mind that the type of biology I did in those days, with all these years of efforts, these tons of brain tissue, these millions of, of sheep brain and so on, any postdoc or graduate student nowadays can do better than that with one pituitary hormone or one hypothalamus based on the new technology of molecular biology and so on. That's, it's a totally different But that's world. true of any pioneer. It's that's true totally of molecular biology now compared to when I was trained in molecular biology. When I was trained in molecular biology, the thing you did to be successful was to clone a gene. Now to clone a gene, you type this, the, the gene name on your computer and it comes in an envelope. Absolutely. So this is true, I think, of all. But I think the, the, the success of neuroendocrinology, I mean, the, a lot of the really key basic issues were solved without resort, resort to molecular biology. It's That's a very absolutely interesting correct. Absolutely correct. Um, um, way sure. that particular science yeah. developed. Anyway, I, I think we've, we've probably talked you out, uh, Roger. I want to thank you for taking the time for this interview. I think it's going to be very, well, very beneficial. My to pleasure, me. of course. And if any of this can be of some substance and help to some of the younger people nowadays, well, I'm happy to have contributed that. But there's no question that neuroendocrinology today is a far larger field of endeavors in terms of the basic research, but also in terms of the practical application yep. in medicine. One point which I want to say here, that every single one of these molecules, which we isolated with all these, these problems over the years, are currently used in modern medicine in either the original sequence of folk or uh, analogs of these peptides and so on. So eventually, I think we made good use of the NIH money. I was just about <laughs> to say the NIH should be very happy with that. Absolutely, and I wish they would still maintain the, the you know, the, the sustenance. The support for this kind of basic research for the period of time they did. Yeah. Thank you okay. again. Thank you again. Pleasure. <laughs> okay. We can have a glass of wine. <laughs> You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.